You're listening to the TheoEd Podcast. In our Brief Talks episodes, you can hear the talks from all of our live events, plus additional talks only available virtually. On today's Brief Talks episode, we welcome Sean Duncan, director of the Lupton Center, where he teaches, trains, and equips organizations across the country with strategies for addressing material poverty. His talk is entitled, Changing Mission for Good. So I want to talk to you this evening about changing mission for good. To do that, I want to tell you about a bucket, a fish, and a turbine. So the bucket. A certain woman felt called by God to serve the poor and the vulnerable. She knew that she lived her life with a full bucket. While there are many marginalized people groups that live their life with an empty bucket. And she also knew that Jesus had called her to share cups of cold water with the least of these. So she decided to travel to somewhere in her city where people were living with empty buckets, pour out from her abundance so they could have full buckets too. And she was so blessed by this experience, she gathered together some of her friends who also were living their lives with full buckets. And together they formed the Cold Water Collective. Week after week, year after year, they traveled to places of emptiness and poured from their buckets into these empty buckets so people could know the fullness of life that they enjoyed. And it went from five neighborhoods to 10 neighborhoods to 50 neighborhoods, and the Coldwater Collective was hailed a success. Until one day, a resident of one of these communities asked the question, How is it that after years of pouring from your buckets into mine, your bucket stays full and mine stays empty? And what this parable says to us is what a lot of researchers and practitioners have been saying, I think, ever more loudly over the last few years. And it's simply that our traditional approaches to addressing material poverty aren't working. And there's a lot of books like Dead Aid or Walking with the Poor or When Helping Hurts or founder of our organization, Toxic Charity, great documentaries like Poverty, Inc., that have got a lot of us stirring and concerned, well, what are we doing? Are these mission trips working? Are these service projects any good? Like, what, what about our benevolence budget? Is this, is this accomplishing any good in our community? And so at the Lupton Center, we'll at times get these emails or these calls from someone who's read one of these books and so, oh no, and they're kind of wringing their hands and say, well, well, are we helping or are we hurting? Is this toxic or is it not? And as valuable as that question is, it's never a yes or a no. This really isn't a pass-fail kind of proposition. So if you are in that spot where you've kind of turned some of those questions over in your own mind, I'm going to give you the, like the super fast diagnostic. Three quick questions, all right? So first, we would ask, have you entered into mutually transformative relationships with those experiencing material poverty? Or is your only interaction with them in the context of the service that you're providing? Number two, who's in charge? Is this your project or theirs? Is this your vision and your calling Or does it belong to the community? 
Is this done for someone or is it done with someone? And third, most simply, at the end of the day, is the bucket still empty? We're crying you to come back tomorrow to fill it again. So that's the bucket. Let's move on to the fish. Usually about this time in the conversation, uh, a hand will kind of pop up and say, ah, I know what you're talking about. I've got it. All right. I've heard this proverb before. Maybe you have too, right? Uh, if you uh, give a person a fish, how long do they eat for? A day. Good job. You've heard this one before, right? Uh, but, if you, but if you teach them to fish, they're going to eat for a lifetime, right? The problem is, at least in my experience, those who are experiencing material poverty tend to be way better at fishing than me. And the last thing they need is me teaching them more about that skill. Or whatever skill I might have does not transfer to anything marketable for their life. And there's other people who have rightly poked holes in this teach a person to fish metaphor. Asking questions about access to the pond and who owns it. And maybe who's depleted it or who's polluted it. Maybe even asking, can they get a fair wage for that fish if they got it out of the water anyway? And in some contexts, the charity market has so flooded their neighborhood with free fish, no need to fish anyway. Now, I will say this. The fishing proverb works when and if you have a job skill that they do not, and by having that job skill, they can get a living wage with benefits that takes care of them. But it is pretty rare that the only barrier between chronic poverty and sustainable well-being is just a new job skill. But I think the main reason why I resist the fishing proverb is because it assumes that the way forward from where we are now is simply tactical. If we just change our program a little bit, Right? If we, we just come up with something a little more new and innovative, if we just shift this approach a little bit differently, we'll fix it. And though our way forward will include different paradigms, different programs, different models, different strategies, different tactics, yes, it will include all of those things. But our way forward, I'm pretty convinced, is not just tactical, it's theological. Because we're filling all these empty buckets in our mission because our theology has taught us to think that way about people and about poverty and about our role in the world. We're not doing what we're doing in spite of what we've been taught. We're doing what we're doing because that's the way we've been taught. And there's a lot we could say about what I would call as a need for a renewal in our theological imagination about poverty, about mission, about our role in the world. There's a lot that could be said about that. But I think we can potentially encapsulate it in saying this. We have been consumed by an over-reliance on the Good Samaritan. It's not that the Good Samaritan is not a good story. It's a great one, one of my favorites, hopefully yours as well. But it's that the Good Samaritan occupies too large of a space in our framework. Or maybe better said, the Good Samaritan occupies the wrong place in our imagination. And here's what I mean. The Good Samaritan is not even about poverty 
alleviation anyway. The question that Jesus was dealing with was not, what do we do about poverty and injustice in the world? The question Jesus was asked had to do with eternal life and who's my neighbor. And so Jesus enters into this story not to talk about methodologies for overcoming poverty. Jesus enters into this story staring at the religious elite to destroy their approach to othering. Because he takes this heretical Samaritan and props him up as the one most deserving of eternal life, most knowing what it means to love your neighbor. What we need is a theological imagination that does away with othering in all of its forms. Now, we might be used to the idea of othering as something that's very belligerent, right? All the isms, right? Racism and all the others. And that certainly is a thing to be confronted. But othering also has a very noble face as well. So uh, my family moved to Atlanta about 15 years ago. And we were very prayerful and deliberate about where we would live and why. We wanted our lives to not just be professionally involved in good in the world, but we wanted all of who we were and where we were to be a part of what God is up to in the world. And we landed in a part of this city where there's a high concentration of refugees who've been resettled here. And my theological imagination at the moment was really filled by this idea of the incarnation that God put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood, right? So I've got to be the one that's God's flesh moving into the neighborhood. I've got to put flesh on God's love in this place. My theological imagination was being driven by this idea that I'm the hands and feet of Jesus, that if Jesus is going to touch or go to anyone that is in my community, it is through me that that's going to happen. My theological imagination was much like the Good Samaritan story in that there's this voiceless, weak, incapable group of people who will only survive unless I help them. Turns out, I'm not that important. (laughs) Turns out, my neighbors were quite resilient people, quite intelligent, quite capable, and quite generous and hospitable, shamingly so in comparison to me. So it turns out that my refugee neighbors didn't need a missionary, they wanted a neighbor. And turns out, I'm not comfortable with that change. Turns out, my theological imagination needed to have that kind of role. And when it came time to be equals, when it came time to be just neighbors, when it came time for your kids to be my kids and my kids your kids, and just it, when it came time to just sit on the floor and share a meal together, it was a lot harder barrier to cross. 
So we need a theological imagination that is capable of doing away with othering in all its forms. In our work at the Lupton Center, we have a, like a diagnostic tool, an assessment, where we help leaders and their organizations really look carefully at, look deeply at, the health and effectiveness of the models they're using to address poverty in their community. And to do this, there are 21 different benchmarks that we consider in that process. And if I were to take kind of the composite of all the leaders and organizations that have gone through that process, there are two that would almost always land towards the bottom. And it's proximity and leadership. And what I mean by proximity is that the geographic and relational lives of those doing the serving and those supposed to benefit from that service are quite separate. And that the only time they tend to meet is in the context of the service itself. That they have their schools their neighborhoods, their parks, their churches, and we have ours. Now, that doesn't mean that we have the aggressive, racist vision of othering. We have a quite noble one that, that loves to come together and care well for your needs. Now, I will say that if we are in a circumstance where someone is within an inch of their life, and they can't speak, and they can't move, and they will die unless we intervene, then proximity and leadership don't matter, okay? Just get that body up and get it somewhere to be healed. But in the vast majority of circumstances, we're talking about people and communities that are resilient, that are capable, that have ideas, that have visions, that have assets, that have abilities, that have a future that they desire for themselves and their community. We need, if we're going to change mission for good, we need a renewal of our theological imagination that does away with all forms of othering. So that was the fish. Finally, we'll wrap up with the turbine. When I was doing my research uh, for a dissertation, I really was driven by this question, why does the church engage the world the way that it does? More honestly, <laughs> why does the church fail to engage the world in a more robust way? So I tried to come at that from maybe a more positive angle and said, well, what if we find the people who are holistically finding their identity and their work and their lifestyle, really caught up in the world in really redemptive ways. And can we talk to those people and ask, well, how did you get here? Why do you live this way? What is it that prompted this way of life? Now, the sad truth is, like nine out of 10 of them, 88% to be really specific, said it was not the church that prompted them to live that kind of engaged life. Now, most of them spoke very affectionately about the churches that raised them, that loved them, that cared for them, but they also said, but I got here 
not really because they pointed me in this direction, and in some ways I got here at the, <laughs> to ignoring their advice to not go in this direction. So I said, okay, well, then let's figure out. If, if they're living this way, they got that way by some means. And can we learn what makes them that way? And then can we go from that and go back to the church and say, here, do these things, and we can make people like that on purpose rather than by accident. And maybe there'll be more of them as well. The good news is there were a lot of different factors that emerged, these common trends and realities that, that moved and prompted lives to live like this. So this is where I want you to picture a turbine, a large windmill out in the field in Iowa somewhere. And think about the winds blowing to force those blades to spin. And there are a lot of common factors that kind of function like the wind, that as it blows, it forces movement in someone's life. But there's one factor that really functions as the turbine. The piece that transforms that movement into an energy that propels a life that can change mission for good, that can live in a deeper, different way in our world. And that one factor, that one key factor, that, that turbine, is authentic encounter. They could each tell stories of when they came face to face with not a social issue, or a demographic, or a project, or a problem to solve. But they came face to face with an equal, with a friend, with a neighbor, with someone who bore the image of God in their flesh right in front of them. And they became co-laborers. They became partners. Their voice was now a voice that could be heard and listened to and even followed. And it was this authentic encounter that for these individuals changed mission for good. Mary Jo Letty is a Catholic sister in Toronto, and she helps to lead something called the Romero House. And in the Romero House, they serve as a community of support for and transitional home for refugees being resettled in Canada. And Mary Gioletti tells a lot of her stories in this book called The Other Face of God. And in the book, she calls us to look at the image of God that we have built and how similar that God looks to us and the people that look like us that we're always spending time with. And Mary Gioletti summons us out of that into this encounter, this authentic encounter with the stranger, with that refugee brought to us to see the other face of God, to see this fuller, more in-depth, more nuanced, more three-dimensional image of the God that we call out to. And I stand with Mary Jo Letty and with others who would say the future of the church depends upon our willingness to enter into these authentic encounters that we must develop what she calls a ceaseless openness to those who are new and unfamiliar. Because in doing that, and having that authentic encounter, 
we can transform our theological imaginations and expand it and do away with othering in all of its forms and therefore change mission for good. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this brief talk. If you have suggestions for future brief talks or big ideas episodes on the TheoEd podcast, visit our website at theoed.com. That's T H E O E D.com to submit your suggestions.